This morning I'll be reading first from Galatians chapter 5, which you can find on page 975, and then Ephesians chapter 2, which just turn the page over and you'll find it on page 976 in your pew Bible. As you're turning there, consider this. Most people want peace, or at least say they want peace, but many aren't sure how to get it. And in the passages that we'll read this morning, Paul speaks very directly both to peace with God and to peace with one another. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together as we prepare to approach God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken to us. You are a God who has given light unto our path, and we pray this morning that you would speak with clarity and with power to us, um, that you would deal with us all individually, um, that, no ma- that we would be reminded that no matter how we come through these doors, whether that be angry and bitter or joyful or thankful, or comfortable, maybe even too comfortable for getting our dependence upon You, or we come knowing the great amount of hypocrisy in our lives, um, or we come discouraged or even full of doubts. Uh, We pray that You would deal with us all this morning, that You would reveal to us that no matter what's going on in our lives, and though the symptoms may differ, we're really all the same underneath because we are all far more broken, far more fallen than we could ever really imagine. Um, But the good news of the gospel that we need to hear this morning is that it can be true that we can be both at the same time 
far more broken than we could imagine, but also far more loved and far more valued and accepted and secure than we ever dreamed possible because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray that you would take us to this good news this morning, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And children ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. (laughs) Not just taken, you'll be taken to your class. Um, So we've been in this series on Paul's letter to the Galatians, and over the past few weeks, we've slowed that series down a little bit to look with a little bit more detail and a little bit more closely at what Paul called in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And it's important as we go through this, um, this little series within a series even, to remember that Paul in Galatians chapter 5 was describing one fruit, singular, um, with a lot of different descriptions for that one fruit. See, Paul was saying to the Galatians that when God's Spirit comes into your life, right, and makes the gospel real to you. Um, When that happens, he's saying, it produces a fruit in your life. When the gospel seed gets planted in you, in your heart, it grows a fruit. Um, And then Paul described that one fruit from these different vantage points. And a a few weeks ago, we said that it was like Paul is holding up before us this precious gem like a diamond. Um, And with each description, with each word, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, he's turning that gem, he's turning that diamond so that you can see all its different facets. Um, And This morning, we've turned this diamond, uh, and now we are going to consider together what it means and how the gospel can create in us a life of peace. Um, Family Matters was a TV sitcom that was around when I was growing up, and some of you probably remember that show, uh, remember Steve Urkel and all those characters. But uh, the theme song for that sitcom, um, it was really peppy, and it was really upbeat, um, And but contrary to its upbeat tune, um, the first line of the, that theme song was actually really depressing. Um, because the first line was this, um, it's a rare condition this day and age. Some of you could probably sing along. I'm not going to try to do that. But um, it's a rare condition this day and age to read any good news on the newspaper page. And it's this catchy tune that's sliding in this terribly depressing line on us, right? Um, and it's a truth that we all know that the basic headline of the news every day is nobody can get along with anybody, right? Countries and nations are in conflict with one another. There's racial enmity. There's conflict in neighborhoods and in the workplace and in our homes um, and in political parties. It's, it's everywhere. And our response to this has often been that to say that well, we just need more education, or we need better social programs, or we need more economic opportunity, or we need, you know, we need to regain our conservative traditional values in our culture. Um, 
and we think that's going to be our hope for change. Um, but we're growing, hopefully you've noticed this, um, that our culture is growing increasingly cynical about this, um, because none of it seems, none of it seems to be able to address the deepest, most fundamental root issues that lie behind our enmity and our strife and our conflict. Um, listen, whenever I, whenever I buy something that requires assembly, you know, assembly required, whether that be a child's toy or uh, a piece of furniture or something like that, I always, I always feel like I start very well um, because I, I start and I'm following, I've laid out all the pieces and I'm following the step-by-step instructions, right? But then it starts to come together and I feel like, ah, oh, I can see it taking shape, the bookshelf, the coffee, t- the, you know, the dollhouse or whatever it is that I'm putting together. And, uh, and that's when I get in trouble <laughs> because when I see it, then I'm like, Oh yeah, I got this. Um, I don't need to, I don't need to worry about the step by step instructions anymore. And I kind of rush ahead. And when that happens, I always find that I have skipped some fundamental important step, which I only realize after I've tightened a bolt into place or a screw or something like that, right? And so it ends up always taking me longer because then I got to back up and I got to undo what I did and then put the thing together right. Um, and all because I skipped over, rushed over one very simple, basic, but fundamental step. See, it's obvious to all of us, I think, that it's, it's rare to read any good news on the newspaper page, that our relationships are broken, um, and they are filled with strife, and we desperately need peace. We know that. But when we skip ahead and we start trying to get ahead of ourselves and deal with the symptom of that brokenness um, with techniques and programs and politics, we skip over our most fundamental root issue, right? See, Paul had a very clear agenda when he was writing to the church at Ephesus. Um, He wanted to tell them that his agenda was relational, right? He wanted the Ephesians to live in and to cultivate peace in their relationships. And to do that, right, he went right after the fundamental issue of our enmity. See, Paul was saying in his letter to the Ephesians, he was saying, not until we've dealt with our alienation from God can we ever deal with our alienation from one another and begin cultivating the peace we so desperately want and need. And so here are three simple points this morning. Finding peace with God, living in peace with one another, and learning to cultivate peace. Okay, so first, finding peace with God. This morning, I I do, it's my goal to bring you to the good news pretty quickly this morning, but first we have to deal with some bad news. Um, And here's the bad news. The Bible makes some very unflattering assumptions about humanity. Um, See, the Bible assumes that we are all naturally at enmity with God, that we are born alienated from Him, estranged from Him, right? That we are born cosmic orphans. As early as Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, we read this, God looked at mankind and He saw that every inclination of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. 
David wrote in Psalm 14, there is no one who does good, not even one. All have turned aside. There is no one, he says, who seeks God. At the beginning of John's gospel, uh, John tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man, this enmity, this strife, this alienation. And, of course, the passage we read from Ephesians 2 earlier, right? It says, we, it basically says, we were the real, the original walking dead. Um, we were born in our trespasses and sins. By nature, it says, we are children of wrath. Throughout, we're hit with this language of enslavement and of being mastered. And it, Paul describes for us the death and decay that is rising up from within us and coming out. And listen, those are some pretty harsh assumptions about humanity. And many of us look at that and we say, you know, that's, that's just an extreme overstatement. I don't see that when I look at humanity. And I think that's because what we have is a very narrow view of what evil actually is. And we think we can pinpoint it. You know, it's violence and it's distorted sexuality and it's hardened immorality and rebellion. You know, a shaking of our fist against the heavens. But think with me about what is probably the Jesus' most famous parable, which would be the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Um, and you can read this later on your own, but you remember the younger son in this story that Jesus told, he demanded his father's inheritance, right, before his father died, which is like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead because I don't love you and I don't want you. I just want your stuff. Thank you very much. And you know that story, he took the, his part of the inheritance and he went out and he lived this wild, rebellious, you know, uh, sexually distorted, this just crazy wild life that we were just referencing earlier. And then Jesus said, when this younger son, when he finally bottomed out, when he finally bottomed out, he came, some, uh, came to his senses and he went home to his father. And Jesus tells us that his father welcomed him. You know, threw his arms around him and his robe on him, and he kissed him and embraced him. It's beautiful, right? And he threw this wonderful party for him. But the elder brother did not go to the party. He was invited, but he didn't attend. And he was outside because Jesus told us he was angry. I mean, he was fuming. And this is what he told his father in Luke chapter 15, verse 29. Look, all these years, I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders. And listen, you need to see what's behind his anger, because this is the point of Jesus' parable. The elder son is basically saying the same thing that the younger son is saying. He's saying, I haven't been obedient for you. I haven't obeyed because I love you. I don't want you. I just want your stuff. That's why I've been slaving away in obedience. And here's what I'm saying. The evil, the deadness, the slavery that shows up in our lives, it shows up in a lot of different forms. Right? Sometimes it's in 
real open rebellion, but sometimes it shows up in religiosity, in morality, in conformity, and even outward obedience. By nature, we're estranged from God and alienated, at enmity with Him. By nature, we want His gifts, but we don't really want Him, is what Paul is saying and what Jesus was saying. Our enmity is so deep and is so fundamental that we'll even use our obedience as an act of defiance against Him to get His things, but not Him. And this is why I put the quote on the front of your bulletin, if you had time to read it, from the famous preacher George Whitfield, because what he's saying in there, and you can read it, he's saying, if you want peace, don't stop at repenting for your sins. You need to repent of your righteousness too. Right? Only when you drop even your righteousness will your hands be empty to grab hold of the wonderful, pure grace of the gospel in Jesus. See, the language of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, if you look at those verses, it, they just pile it up on us, to t- or Paul is piling it up on, on these, his readers to show them how far away from God they were, either in religiosity or irreligiosity. Paul was writing to Gentile believers, which we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment, but he's saying, look how far away from God you were. You weren't born into the Jewish line, right? You were cut off from the promises of the Messiah, he says. You were excluded from citizenship, he says. You were foreigners to the covenant, covenants. You were without hope and without God. Bad news is what he's saying. But then comes the glorious, the wonderful good news of the gospel, right? I meant to have us read all of verses 1 through 7, and I forgot to change it in the bulletin. But that's because verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2, it's one sentence in the Greek. It's all one long sentence, and the main verb is in verse 5, which at least I included that one. We are dead in our sins, but, verse 5, God made us alive. In Jesus, in Christ. We were far away, but verse 13, in Christ you are brought near. By nature we were objects of wrath, but verse 14, Jesus is our peace. We were foreigners to the covenants, but verse 19, Jesus made us fellow citizens. Here's what Paul was saying. You were cut off and lost. You were running away from God, whether that was in open rebellion or in your obedience. But God, this is the good news. You are running away. But God came running to you in his son Jesus. He rescued you from the death you deserved. And he brought you near. He reconciled you to himself. He made peace and he ended the hostility. I'm going to tell you a sad little story about one of my children. Um, I'll I'll try not to mention her name. But um, one of my kids... Um, they're going to be in a lot of therapy just for the illustrations I use. But um, anyway, um, one of my kids, a couple of weeks after um, she, that doesn't give anything away, I have three daughters, um, a couple of weeks after she started uh, kindergarten, my daughter was with her class when they, her class went to the gym. And they were making their way back to the class, and she got separated from her class. And so she's in this brand new place, um, and she's in the hallway, and she's lost, and she doesn't know how to get back to the class classroom. 
or find her class, and so she's all alone. Well, eventually someone came along and, and got her and saw her there crying and took her to the office, and they got her back to the class. And so later that day, we were talking about, when she came home, we were talking about what had happened. And she told us, you know, she was, what happened, and she was crying in the hall when someone found her. And, you know, as parents, our hearts broke for our little little girl, and, uh, and we asked, were you scared? And she said, to our surprise, she said, no, not really, I, I, don't, I wasn't scared. And uh, so we said, well, why were you crying then? And this is what she said. She said, I was sad because I was all alone and no one was looking for me. That's sad, isn't it? Right? But, and you can relate to that. But my question is, why is it that you can relate to that? We were born into this world feeling alienated. We were cut off, right? We were far away. We were excluded. We were cosmic orphans who had run away from our one good true father and from our true home. Listen, and the more that that truth sets in, the more we're scared and we're scared that we don't matter and we're scared that we're scared that maybe we aren't lovable and maybe no one would miss us and we don't have value right and and when we're looking at that and we're facing that yeah sometimes when we're facing that we respond with open vicious rebellion but many times We try to conform, and we try to get religious, and we obediently slave away, trying to prove that we are lovable, and that we matter, and that we're significant. And do you know what that breeds in you when you do that? It breeds a deep, fundamental self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness fuels the feelings of superiority and inferiority that lies beneath all of our enmity with one another. And I'm telling you, for us to get along and to live in peace with one another, we have to start here. To find real peace with God, you have to repent, not just of your sin, but of your righteousness too, and come to Jesus empty-handed. The bad news is real. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine. Even your righteousness needs to be repented of. But Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. He came to be your peace. The good news of the gospel is that you are far more loved and accepted and valued and secure than you could have ever dreamed possible. Now now we're ready to talk about living together in peace, living in peace with one another. The second point, the Bible says all over the place that an identifying mark of God's people is that they live in peace and in unity with one another. It's like the mark on my $20 bill when I go to pay for something at Kroger and the girl at the register, you know, she holds it up to the light so she can see that mark. Like, I look like a counter, counterfeiter or something, and she holds it up there, but when she sees that mark, she, she 
marks the bill, and she knows it's genuine, right? God says the identifying mark of his people will be living in peace with one another. It is the natural fruit of the gospel. In Philippians, we read that if we share in Christ together, then we should have the same mind and the same love. Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17 that we would be one and that we would be brought to unity so that the world would know that the gospel is true. It's looking for that mark to see if it's true. Listen, the question for us in the second point is why or how this is even possible. I mean, Paul wrote in verse 14 that Jesus is our peace, and he has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. One scholar that I read writes this, most of today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalisms, or our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. And if you've turned on the news lately, that's saying a lot, that there would be that much enmity. See, the Jews prayed regularly for the death of Gentiles. It was against the law for a Jew to help a Gentile woman give birth because that would have been bringing another Gentile into the world. The Gentiles and the Greeks, they believed that all non-Greeks were all enemies by nature, and they all naturally deserve death. But what is this dividing wall that Paul was talking about here? See, in Herod's temple, there was an actual literal wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple, forbidding the Gentiles to enter. And then in the the early 1800s, this wall was discovered in an archaeological dig. And uh, they found this wall, and they found this inscription on the wall when they uncovered it. And this is what it said. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's a dividing wall of hostility. And Paul said, Jesus came and he ripped that wall down. He tore that dividing wall down, and he did it through his death. He died to bring the wall down to give Jews and Gentiles together access to God and to have peace with one another. But still our question remains, right? How? How could the death of one man, even that, even a man who was also God, how could that bring peace between us? Verse 15 says this, that Jesus broke down this dividing wall in his flesh, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two making peace. There's a lot here. But Kent Hughes writes that Jesus did not Christianize the Jews or Judaize the Gentiles. He didn't create a half-breed. He made an entirely new man. And here's what I think Paul was saying here. Jesus came and he created an entirely new ethnicity by his death. He made one new man in place of the two, making peace. And here's how he did it. When Jesus died, he abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. Let me explain this. You know what a paradigm shift is? We've, we've all experienced or, or seen a paradigm shift at some place, uh, whether we were watching a movie maybe or reading a book or maybe it's something grander in your life, a worldview shift or something like that. But 
mystery novels and detective-type movies are the best place to see this, because a paradigm shift is when you're reading along or you're watching the movie, and you're trying to solve the mystery yourself, right? And every clue is pointing in one direction, right? It has to be such and such a character. I can see it. I'm following all the clues. They're all pointing right here. But then at the last moment, you're given one more clue, And that one clue both solves the case or the mystery, and it also changes your view of everything in the movie or everything in the book. Because I thought every clue was pointing to him, but now it all makes sense. And now everything means something different. Every clue points in a different direction now. That's a paradigm shift. The textbook definition is that a paradigm shift is a fundamental shift right, in approach or underlying assumptions. Here's one thing that Paul wanted to tell his his audience. Get along with one another. (laughs) Live in peace with one another. So why didn't he just write that? (laughs) I mean, if that's what he wanted to do, but, but instead he goes on for so long because he was saying for you to really and truly and deeply change your entire paradigm has to be changed. The way you see the entire world has to be shifted, right? See, if you think you have to prove your worth and your significance and that you're lovable and that you matter and that you belong, do you know what happens? You turn to some, you turn to some command. You turn to some statute, some law, some ordinance, and you start trying to conform to it. And on your good days, you are going to be filled with such pride and superiority, and you'll look down at all those people, right? Why can't they get their act together? They are what's wrong with this world. You know, on your bad days, you're going to be filled with deep insecurity and inferiority, right? And the seeds of bitterness in you are going to start to blossom, right? How dare they look at me like that? You know what? They're what's wrong with the world. Listen, we don't have time to get into all these details here, but that right there is the recipe behind all of our conflicts, whether they be over race, socioeconomics, culture, gender, politics, whatever. But listen, the gospel has the power to entirely shift the paradigm for us because the gospel says you didn't get in by money. You didn't get in by race or culture or morality or your education or your preference for worship styles or or how you educated your kids. There's only one way in, and it is through the blood of Jesus. You've been welcomed in. You have been embraced and kissed by the Father. And that's it. He abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. There is absolutely no footing for our self-righteousness. No one gets in by the law. That's a paradigm shift. Real quick, when James, uh, when James he wrote his letter, um, there was a problem in the church that he was addressing. And that problem was that people weren't getting along. Surprise, surprise. There's never any good news on the newspaper page, right? Um, favoritism was happening in the church, and, um, and the conflict and the strife and the disunity there was all over the haves and the have-nots, the wealthy and the poor. And here's what James wrote in James chapter 1, verse 19, 9 and 10. He wrote this, "'Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation.'" He's applying the good news of the gospel to both 
in different ways. And this is what he's saying to the lowly brother who is struggling with feeling inferior in his life. He says, boast in your exaltation. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look at the gospel. You are far more loved. You are far more accepted. You are far more valued. You are far more rich in Jesus than you could have ever dreamed possible. And he turns to the rich, and he says to the rich who are struggling with feeling superior, and he says, boast in your humiliation. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look at the gospel and be reminded that you are far more broken and far more sinful and far more fallen than you could ever imagine. See, in Jesus' kingdom, the bottom line is grace, and that's it. And when grace is your bottom line, all self-righteousness vanishes, and we can live in peace with one another. Okay, third and last, I want to briefly talk with you about learning how to cultivate peace. Okay, and I'm going to be brief here because I really just have two words for you from our passage that I want to pull out for you and apply to you. But it's really important that we talk about this because I know how this works because I've sat in your, posi- your position before because this is all good and fine for right now while we're in church. Um, and it sounds great saying this kind of stuff in church. Um, but what about later today or tomorrow when your spouse says something that triggers all your insecurities and you are deeply hurt? What about Monday when you try to avoid eye contact with that one guy in your office? He is so different, and he is so stinking needy, um, and, uh, and you feel like you have nothing in common with him. What about when you notice the moral gulf that exists between you and your neighbor? Um, what do you do? Sooner or later, and I'm betting on sooner, um, this is going to become real for us. You're going to have a real-time opportunity to put this stuff to the test. So how do you avoid falling back into your default modes of superiority or inferiority? How do you keep your self-righteousness in check, is what I'm asking, and cultivate peace? First, two words, remember and access. Those are the two words. First, you have to remember something. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. And then he goes on, remember you were cut off from Christ, separated, alienated, alone. One day I'm going to do a word study and I'm going to prove this, but remember has to be one of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture. I would not be surprised if it's number one. Um, Remember, what does it mean? It means think about. It means use your brain, ponder, meditate, consider, think about who you were without Jesus. Think about who you were before Jesus moved towards you and came running to you to embrace you. Think about how Jesus made peace for you, how he brought you near. Here I am, and I'm trying to avoid eye contact with that guy or that lady in the office, you know, or my neighbor when he's out cutting his grass, and we're just so different. He's from a different country and a different race, and he's hard to understand when he talks. Here's what I'm saying. In that moment, don't try to conjure up some sappy Hallmark card or something like that, you know. Try and get emotional about it. Um, You know, that's cheesy, and it's just not going to really change you. But the other thing is, you know, don't try to pretend or don't, or don't try to ignore the reality. Kind of like you, you look at this neighbor of yours from a different culture or whatever you say, you know, oh, I, I didn't even know you were Indian. You know, I don't, I don't see race. Um, that's, that's stupid too. Um, you know, what I, but, you know, don't do nothing. 
Don't do nothing. Don't walk away. Here's what you have to do in that moment. You have to remember. You have to remember that you were a foreigner to Jesus. You were an alien. You were cut off. You were completely lost. But Jesus came running to you, and he threw his arms around you, and he embraced you, and he kissed you, and he... And God calls you his beloved son, his beloved daughter. When it's Monday morning and you're nervous about the presentation that you have to give to the boardroom and, you know, all of your feelings of inferiority start to rise to the surface. Or when it's Tuesday afternoon and it's 3 o'clock and you're in the car line and you see that mom and you start to feel superior. Um, you have to remember at that moment What Paul is saying is that you need to learn how to preach the gospel to yourself again and again and again. You have to work the peace of God so deep into your heart that it begins to overflow in peace with others. Second, let me mention this word access pretty briefly here in verse 18. Paul wrote, verse 18, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Through Jesus we share access to the Father by one spirit. And I'm going to ask you this morning, is that truth burned into your heart? I mean, Jesus created in himself one new man, a new ethnicity. We all come in by grace, right? And by grace alone, there is no other way. And Paul is saying, you have to look and see that the playing field at the foot of the cross is completely level. And I'm asking, are you seeing that? Are you seeing what you hold in common, especially with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you seeing all the differences? Because that's where it's tempting to live, with all the differences, right? That's where we find fuel for our superiority or our inferiority. We see the different preferences and agendas and opinions and the gifting and the talent and the wealth and the whatever. And you have to learn and look at what is common among you. You share, we share access to the Father through one Spirit. From the very beginning of Grace Community Church, some of you have been around for a few years, you know that we have said over and over again that we are going to be a church that majors in the majors and minors in the minors. We want to be a church that majors on the majors and is deeply connected on the majors and doesn't sweat the small stuff. We have access to the Father through one spirit. That is a major. Grace is the bottom line. Think through these two words. That's my encouragement to you this afternoon, this next week. Remember and access. Remember the gospel. Consider your access to the Father. I'm going to end this way in light of the words, some of the words that we've seen in our passage this morning. We share access to the Father for this one reason. Because Jesus was cut off from his father because he was alienated, because he was cast off from his father. You remember Jesus on the cross, he cried out in his anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read Ephesians chapter 2. That's the answer to that question. He was forsaken and he was cut off to bring you near. Right? He endured his father's wrath to secure your peace. He was forsaken to make one new man out of the two. 
Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that in Jesus' death, he killed the hostility. Yes, he did. And he broke the brokenness and he destroyed destruction. He brought down the dividing wall of hostility. Listen, do you have peace with God? Are you living in peace with one another? Are you remembering the gospel? Are you considering your access to the Father through one spirit? Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have spoken to us and that every page of your word heralds the good news of the gospel, that life is found in Jesus and in him alone. Father, our prayer is that the good news of the gospel would come, and in seeing Jesus crucified for us, the gospel would crucify all our self-righteousness, and that we would be able to live in peace with one another. But Father, you know how hard it is for us to do just that, and so our prayer is that you would help us by your Spirit, that you would Help us to remember the good news of the gospel, that you would remind us that we have access to you through one spirit, your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.